This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Naval Surface Warfare Center Dahlgren Division, like other defense units, seeks to bring new industrial capabilities quickly to benefit the mission. Now it's entered into a new Other Transaction Agreement, or OTA, to do just that. OTA, in the right circumstances, lets agencies speed up acquisitions, often non-competitive ones. Here with the details of the Dahlgren Division's head of contracting, Militia McAuliffe. Ms. McAuliffe, good to have you on. Thank you, sir. And the vice president of the Sea, Space, and Air Division at ATI, Chad Bryant. Mr. Bryant, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. And I'm going to start with you, Ms. McAuliffe. Tell us the relationship between uh, Dahlgren and ATI and how this whole system is set up for OTAs, and then we'll get into what it is you're going to buy with this. Sure. In 2019, NSWC Dahlgren was interested in establishing an OTA, and other transactional agreement. We were looking for a consortium manager. So we solicited and competitively awarded an agreement, other transactional agreement, with ATI being the consortium manager. The partnership with ATI has been phenomenal. NSWC Dahlgren OTA is the Naval Surface Technology and Innovation Consortium. ATI currently manages well over a thousand members, companies, non-traditional entities, etc., that are members of this consortium. Okay, and let me ask you, Chad, then ATI is a .org, correct? And how do you operate these consortia? What happens? Yes, we are a .org. So ATI, we've been in the collaboration management firm business for uh, about a quarter century, so just shy of 25 years. Our business model is essentially to build and lead technology development collaborations. And sometimes and oftentimes, these collaborations will take the shape of a consortium, such as the uh, Naval Surface Technology Innovation Consortium. And the premise behind what we do is we bring together a diverse mix of technology cohorts, and that includes commercial companies and academic institutions to help identify technical challenges uh, that the government may have and uh, help provide solutions uh, that ultimately uh, get to the warfighter. And uh, Ms. McAuliffe, let's get an idea of some of the things that you are hoping to acquire in a quick, agile manner using the consortium, using the OTA, the other transaction authority. What are you looking at taking into Dahlgren? A variety of things. So just to give you a little bit of detail about the OTA, the other transactional agreement has 22 technology areas. And we, within this other transactional agreement, the technology areas allow for supporting cyber requirements, big data analytics and artificial intelligence requirements, unmanned systems, E-cubed requirements, and that is electromagnetic environmental effects and spectrum. So there's a variety of potential research and development requirements that can be satisfied with this OTA. And what about hypersonics? Hypersonics is on our list as well, as well as lethality, launcher technology, human systems integration. We're also looking at quantum technology, digital engineering, gun and projectile systems. Again, those are part of the 22 technology areas. So if there is a need and we're looking for a solution, prototype, then the OTA is the tool to use to try to get to those, again, those mom and pop shops, those non-traditionals that we are not currently aware of or that we currently have not done business with. And they may be able to bring the solution that the Navy needs to complete its mission. 
We're speaking with Missy McAuliffe. She's contracting chief at the Naval Surface Warfare Center Dahlgren Division and with Chad Bryant, the vice president of the Sea, Space and Air Division at ATI, their OTA consortium manager. And let's just using hypersonics as an example. I like that one because I actually held in my own hands a hypersonic projectile when I was down at Dahlgren last year and thought it was a pretty cool piece of aluminum, to be honest with you. Suppose you need something, a piece of research or a prototype of a component in a hypersonic system. What's the process by which the potential vendors, these non-traditional vendors, are identified? Then how do they interact with the consortium in such a way that they result in some expenditure and developing something for you? How does it all work? Well, Missy, go ahead. ATI, again, you know, as the consortium manager, they develop a tool in which all of the consortium members have access. So when NSWC Dahlgren technical community has a need, they develop a statement of need. That statement of need is provided to ATI, who then submits it or or shares it with all of the members of the consortium. Those members have an opportunity to develop a proposal and submit that proposal. Of course, there are timelines associated with that, but the proposals are submitted. The government receives those proposals, are able to readily evaluate those proposals, and then are able to move forward with the offerer who offers the ideal solution. Got it. And Mr. Bryant, it sounds as if ATI maintains almost an ecosystem of small vendors, small companies with capability, I should say, in each of these technology areas. Tom is a great way to put it. We actually, you know, have uh, each one of these consortia is uh, purpose-built around a portfolio of technologies, um, which equates to uh, essentially building an ecosystem. And inside that ecosystem, we have the large traditional contractors and we have the preponderance of the ecosystem are small and non-traditional contractors, companies that wouldn't necessarily work with the federal government in a contract scenario. So we build those individual consortiums to match that portfolio of technology areas, uh, such as NISTICs. Sure. And for the government's part in using other transaction agreements or OTAs, authorities, then you are not doing federal acquisition regulation procurement. So there is a lot less burden, a lot less bureaucratic process on the government's part. Is that also true for the vendors when coming in through an OTA? There's less maybe compliance that they have to do than they would if it was a FAR procurement? Yes, uh, absolutely. So they've got an opportunity that these commercial vendors and these non-traditionals, when they come in, they're not burdened by some of the federal uh, acquisition regulations, such as the accounting systems and some of the other type of systems that will tend to, uh, you know, to kind of slow down the, the process and, and also turn away some of these, uh, these smaller vendors. So there's great opportunity there for them. And do you have kind of a filtration system such that some really big camels don't get their nose into the OTA tent because they're not really the type of vendors you're trying to work with? Well, we actually work across the spectrum. We do have large traditional contractors uh, in the majority of our consortia. And oftentimes, these traditional contractors may uh, take the lead on individual efforts and prototyping efforts and bring in a non-traditional or a commercial entity to assist in what they call to a significant extent to provide some of the technology they may not have access to. So there is play for both large traditional contractors and the non-traditionals. However, the purpose behind these OTAs are really to reach out to those uh, those smaller vendors, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that wouldn't have normal access or normally would not access the federal space. So it's a little different than the traditional teaming or subcontracting arrangements that you would have under the FAR between large companies and small companies. 
Yes, you could say that. All right. And Missy, give us some results you've had so far. Any signature projects you can describe for us? Yeah, um, we were talking about the vendors that actually participate. And again, you know, it's a mixture of both large, small, academia, et cetera. But one of the big tickets that's associated with this OTA is that a non-traditional has to play a significant role in each project. So even if award is made to maybe a larger contractor, the preponderance of the work or the effort needs to be performed significantly by one of those non-traditionals. That being said, to answer your current question, we've actually awarded over 50 projects against our OTA, executing well over $300 million just in the last two and a half years from inception. Projects that we've executed include a jet gun phase one, a broad ocean area prototype, data collection system, the Wave Reaper, a COTS radar blanker. There's a variety, again, against all of the 22 technology areas. So there's a variety of projects that have been executed. Sure. And as we get into 2023, do you have fresh authority, fresh money coming in and this will continue? What's the future look like here? Yeah, we have sponsors. We're currently in an open cycle where we're obtaining statement of needs from the technical community. And we've been given a projection that there are a significant number of projects that are anticipated from you know, one of the technical departments here. So we expect that this OTA will continue to grow. You know, it's becoming more and more popular and useful for not only NSWC Dahlgren, but sponsors such as IWS-1, Integrated Warfare Systems at NAVC, are using this OTA. We do expect it to continue to expand. And Chad, if someone has a really bright idea and they think they can start a small company, how do they get involved via an ATI? If they're looking to uh, reach out to ATI, you can find us uh, on a public website, ATI.org. As mentioned earlier, we have over two dozen collaborations that may be of interest to uh, small businesses and non-traditionals. So we just ask to reach out to ATI.org or uh, you could contact me directly via my LinkedIn Chad Bryant is Vice President of the Sea, Space, and Air Division at ATI. Missy McAuliffe is a Contracting Chief at the Naval Surface Warfare Center Dahlgren Division. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get-involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL 
uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn, uh, every day almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit, uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give, uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so, uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we, we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day. But, uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. 
you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences. And that our athletes, man, are some of the greatest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, it, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.